This morning we are uh, returning to our study in the book of Hebrews, and we've come to chapter 5. Now the thing you should know about chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews is that it's, uh, at least the first part of the chapter, is an expansion of, a, of what was said at the end of chapter 4. And uh, so I just wanted to uh, read this, this uh, text beginning at the end of chapter 4, uh, where we read this. Uh, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect uh, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to him for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I was... uh, I've, I've read this book recently, which I find uh, really, really encouraging. I have a copy of it here. It's this book by this guy named Dane Ortland, and the title of the book is Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I, I highly recommend it. And he pointed out something in this book that I found really interesting. I actually had trouble believing it at first, Uh, but I checked, (laughs) and it's true. The the thing he notices at the beginning of this book is there's only one verse in all the Bible where the heart of Jesus Christ is characterized, is described directly. (laughs) Now, there's plenty of places where we might learn something about the heart of Christ, but there's only one passage where the text says, this is the heart of Jesus. 
And it's that text we just read from Matthew 11. Gentle and lowly in heart. Now that's quite a statement. Because Jesus is the Son of God, and in that very same text, he says, everything, everything has been given to the Son by the Father. And then he says, come to me if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're uh, at, at the end of labor. Now you feel at the end of the day when you had a hard work day. Come to me, I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's the only text in the whole Bible where the heart of Jesus is specifically described. What an what a interesting description that is. Gentle and lowly. You know, those words are relative terms. They're talking, Jesus is describing how he is toward others. We read about this in the book of Philippians, where he humbled himself to be one of us, and then humbled himself among us. That's what the word lowly means. He actually puts himself beneath us in order to give us rest and encouragement. That's amazing. This is the God of the universe that we're talking about. The very eternal Son of God, made flesh, is gentle and lowly of heart. And this is, in the book of Hebrews, kind of the source of how he functions as our high priest before God. And this is the clear statement of, uh, the end, at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews, we have a great high priest. We don't just have a high priest. We have a great high priest. There have been lots of high priests. You know, it was a high priest that essentially ordered the execution of Jesus. And he came from a family of high priests. And of course, the family of high priests goes all the way back to the one that's mentioned in this text, Aaron the high priest, the first high priest of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is referred to here as the great high priest. We have a great high priest. I wonder what makes him great relative to the other high priests. Well, I'm glad we've come to the book of Hebrews because the next several chapters of the book of Hebrews are going to answer that very question. What makes Jesus great compared to other high priests? Well, here in this text, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Well, none of the other high priests did that. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, as we've already mentioned here in the book of Hebrews, where he is now, having made propitiation for sins, is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He passed through the heavens in order to take his seat at the right hand of God. He's called here the Son of God. None of the other high priests were the Son of God. 
Now, it also says here he's able to sympathize. This is at the end of chapter 4. He's able to sympathize. Because he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and this is related to the fact that he has been tested in every way just like we are. Tested or tempted is one translation of this uh, verse. Yet without sin. So here's what happens to me when I get tested. I often fail the tests. (laughs) Uh, You can't say about me that I've been tested in every way, first of all. And you can't say about me that when I've been tested, I came through it without sin. But you certainly can say that about the Lord Jesus, and in this way, he is completely distinct from all the other high priests. Well, then uh, the writer, at the beginning of chapter 5, he goes into a description of uh, the high priest, and he says, every high priest... So the way this structure, uh, this text is structured is he's going to talk about every high priest, and then he's going to talk about Christ. So at the beginning of verse 1, we read every high priest, and at the beginning of verse 6, I think it is, or 5, <laughs> these numbers are small. At the, at the beginning of verse 5, we read, so also Christ. And so we're going to get a description of Christ as high priest. Well, the first thing he says about the high priest is he's chosen from among men. The priest has to be one of us, whoever us is. And so if we're talking about humanity, the priest is chosen from among men. And the Aaronic high priest, the priest of Israel under the law of Moses, was chosen from among Israel. And in fact, he was chosen from among the tribe of Levi, and in fact, he was chosen from among the family of Aaron. But he has to be one of us to be our priest. So he's chosen, and then he's appointed to act on behalf of men. So he's chosen from men to represent men. And when I say men, I mean humanity. He's chosen from among people to represent humanity in relation to God. Okay, so the priest stands before God on our behalf. And he can do this only because of this next thing, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, this is the function of the priest. In fact, one of the things we'll learn in the book of Hebrews, if we didn't know it already, is that the sacrifices of the Old Testament temple, the sacrifices of the temple in Israel, day after day, minute, hour by hour, all day, every day, there were sacrifices being made in the temple to God by the priests of Israel. And one of the points of the book of Hebrews is those sacrifices 
Well, they didn't really solve the problem. They offered a cover, but they didn't really solve the problem of sin. Now, I don't want to get too much into that until we get to it in the book of Hebrews. So the high priest is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then it says this in verse uh, 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. <laughs> the ignorant and wayward, the people who don't know and wander. Oh, well, that's pretty much everyone, I guess. People who don't know. Well, I don't know everything. I'm, I have a high degree of ignorance, especially if you were comparing me to God. I'm, I think by, in that comparison, you better just call me completely ignorant and certainly wayward. Of course, ignorance leads to waywardness and vice versa. So we wander away from the righteousness of God. We wander away from God himself. We, are, we don't know. We don't know. We don't even notice when we're ignorant and wayward. But the priest can deal gently with people such as us. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so he has the same problem, so he might have sympathy. Now, I think it's interesting. It says here he can deal. I'm pretty sure there were some high priests in the history of Israel that didn't deal so gently with the people of Israel, but they certainly could have given their own state of weakness. And by the way, this is exhibited here in our text with this expression, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. In fact, the priest, the first sacrifice the priest needed to make was a sacrifice for himself, and having been covered by that sacrifice, he could then go on to make sacrifices for others. And this could be a reminder to the priest that he has the same problems as everyone else, and so he could deal gently with others. I think it's interesting that in the system of the sacrifices, the priest is called upon to deal gently. To deal gently. Well, that, re that reminded me of that text about the heart of Jesus. Gentle. Gentle and lowly in heart. Now the last thing this text says about the high priest is he's not self-appointed. <laughs> he's not self-appointed. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the high priest was called by God. All the priests were chosen by God for their service in the temple of God. So these are, this is the function of every high priest, chosen, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, dealing gently with us ignorant and wayward, and not self-appointed, appointed by God. 
So then the writer comes to Christ. And here we're going to see some similarities, and we're going to see some distinctions. We're going to see the beginning of this discussion of how is Jesus so much greater than all the other priests? Well, it says it begins with some way, a way that they're similar. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. But was appointed. He did not exalt himself. We read about this in the book of Philippians. He humbled himself and humbled himself and humbled himself and humbled himself. So that he placed himself beneath all men lowly. And this was his heart, we read in Matthew 11. He didn't have to have his arm twisted to humble himself. This was his, in his nature to humble himself. The fact that he was here at all is a clear sign of this, to leave the right hand of the throne of God and to be made man. That's a great humility. And then among us, to humble himself to the point of death. Now it says here, he was uh, appointed from among men. And then it, it notes this, it quotes a psalm, which is interesting. It's Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now Psalm 2 was composed, I believe, for the coronation of Solomon. And Psalm 2 has a specific person in mind, in the mind of the writer, the human writer. <laughs> And it has another specific person in mind, in the mind of the divine author, the Holy Spirit. And that person is Jesus, because here, God is speaking to Jesus. In the psalm, David is speaking to his son, or perhaps God is speaking to Solomon as a son, and the son of David, exalting him to be the king of Israel today, I have begotten you. You are my son. So, we might want to ask the question, how can this be applied to the eternal son? Today, I have begotten you. How do we make sense of it? He's been the son of God. He never was not the son of God. He is always the son of God. He's the eternal son of God. And God, the triune God, lives in eternal relation to the, the, among the three persons of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're, they've always been in that relation. There's never been a time when he wasn't the Son of God. And yet here he says, today I have begotten you. Well, this is Christmas. And also this is the ascension and the seating of Christ at the right hand of God. He is made king as a man. And that is the thing here. He's made the son as a man. He's, we have in this text, we have a lot of becoming, which we'll see. We have him learning, and we have him becoming perfect. We, we should say, well, he's always been perfect. And yes, but as a man, he's becoming perfect. He's perfection perfected. We'll talk more about that in a minute, I hope. Uh, but he's uh, from among men, today I have begotten you. 
And Christ is our priest because he's one of us. If he doesn't become one of us, he can't be our priest. He can be our God, but he can't be our... He has to come from here and represent us before the Father to be qualified as the high priest. And so he's chosen by God. He's appointed by God. He doesn't exalt himself to be high priest. He's in the business of humbling himself his whole life. And God is choosing him and appointing him to be our priest. And so he ministers on behalf of men. And this is in the next phrase. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, I know right now you want me to explain all about Melchizedek. Because whenever we get to that name in the book of Hebrews, everyone goes, wow, what's that mean? What's that, what's that priest according to Melchizedek thing? Sorry, we're going to save that. Because the book of Hebrews is going to explain it to us in the next several chapters. And this is a big part of the argument for the greatness of the priesthood of Jesus compared to the priesthood of Israel. Because the priesthood of Israel is in the order of Aaron, the high priest of Israel, Melchizedek comes before Aaron. Melchizedek is the priest to Abraham, the father of faith. And so we have in Christ a priest of that order, not just the order of Aaron. Okay, uh, and we'll be explaining all about that. Now this psalm comes, this comes from Psalm 110, another messianic psalm where the Lord says to my Lord, oh, and the writer of Hebrews is going to make some uh, really interesting teaching from that. The Lord says to my Lord, and this is David writing the psalm, the Lord, Yahweh, God, says to my Lord, who is David's Lord? And that's the argument in the book. We'll come to that also later. <laughs> but uh, what we want to notice now is that he's from men and for men. He's on behalf of men, this priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the other thing I want to notice here, he's a priest forever. Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to make a lot out of this. You see, we're going to be unpacking this for weeks to come in the next few chapters, but he's a priest forever. Well, you couldn't say that about Aaron or any of the priests of Israel, but you can say it about Christ. He's a priest forever. He offers a forever sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice, a done and done sacrifice. They didn't have that kind of sacrifice. So he's called by God, he's from among men, and he serves on behalf of us before God. And then we come to this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, I want to just point out that he says Jesus here and not Christ. So he's talking about Jesus, you know, the flesh and blood guy. Uh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So this is suffering prayer. Loud cries and tears. And this isn't an act. 
This is from the heart. Uh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Oh, we know what prayer this is talking about. This is the garden prayer. Now, I think the point that the writer is making here is this. Uh, it's the he can deal gently point. Because he suffered like we suffer. He's been with us. He knows us. He knows the difficulty of our condition. He uh, <clears throat> is serving us. This is gentle and lowly to offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I also think there's a connection between this and the offering or the sacrifice that the priest had to make for himself. Now, Jesus was perfectly righteous, and there's no sacrifice required for him to come before God because he has perfectly righteous standing before God his whole life. And yet, he offers prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence or his fear of God. Well, <clears throat> this is the agony of the garden. And Jesus knows our condition. And I, I draw the connection to the sacrifice of the priest for himself. Because here Jesus is praying on behalf of himself. And sweat, blood in this prayer. He comes before God on his own behalf in order to come before God on our behalf. And he prays, and the conclusion of his prayer is, your will over mine. And so we see he's obedient, as Paul puts it in Philippians, to the point of death. It's not that he enjoyed dying. It, he agonized in his death and obeyed to the point of death. So he offered up prayers and supplication, the agony of the garden. Now this says he was heard. Well, that's interesting. He was heard because of his fear of God. And that means the Lord Jesus prized the glory of God the Father above all things. That's the fear of God. And he was heard. And I want to say, well, wait a second. Wasn't the answer no? Well, in part. But when Jesus says, not my will but yours, he, he means it. And so he suffers death for us, but he was heard. 
So he's raised, and so he's exalted, and so he's seated at God's right hand. He was heard. He was heard because he accomplished the thing he was sent to accomplish. And that's at the heart of that prayer, not my will, but thine be done. Now this says also, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And that expression, although he was a son, means he had no obligation to enter into this arrangement whatsoever, and yet did so. He has the position, eternal son of God, and although that's the case, he came, he became one of us, and put himself in the position of needing to learn obedience through suffering. Now, that doesn't mean he was ever disobedient, but his obedience progresses. He is humbling himself, humbling himself in obedience to this great commission he has from the Father. He's obedient, and more so, and more so, and more so. In Luke chapter 2 we read he grew in wisdom, as a young man, he submitted himself to his parents, who were less perfect than him by far, and he submitted himself to them and he grew, he learned, he grew in wisdom and stature. So he didn't just grow from a child to a man, he grew from a child to a man. He's learning through obedience. He's always perfectly obedient. And so he's always perfectly learning and he learns to, through obedience all the way. He's obedient to the point of death. So he learned obedience through suffering. We frequently fail to learn obedience through our suffering. In fact, suffering always presents to us some kind of temptation to disobey, which we frequently do. It's not that hard to draw us off of righteousness, Jesus stuck with it. This is why I say the resistance of sin in the life of Jesus was harder, not easier. We think, well, he's God, so he can't sin, so resisting sin must have been easy for him. No, I think it was even harder for him because he kept on resisting past the point where we would all fail, right all the way onto the cross. That was not easy. And when we see Jesus sweating blood <laughs> in this prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears, that's not easy resistance to sin. It's a battle. Which he wins. And he learns obedience through suffering. And then it says, being made perfect... And again, we have the same thing, being made perfect. Wait a second. He is perfect. He's eternally perfect. He was always perfect. He's, the, he's God. What's imperfect? We can't say God is not perfect. Well, again, we are discussing the Lord Jesus in his humanity. 
And in his humanity, he is being made perfect because in his humanity as the high priest, as the one chosen from among men to represent men before God, he's one of us, he's a man, he is made perfect <laughs> through suffering and being made perfect, he became again. We cannot talk about God as becoming anything. God is who God is. He's eternal. He's immutable, we say in the theology school. He does not change yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. Hebrews uses that expression for Jesus as well. The Son of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Always has been. So how did he become? He's one of us. And as a man, he became the source of eternal salvation. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And again, I want to point out the word eternal. It goes with the word forever. <laughs> He's forever the high priest because the salvation he provides is an eternal salvation. The salvation provided by the sacrifices of the Old Testament law were not eternal salvation. They were, for the time being, salvation. And I would say this, and we'll probably say this again as we go through the book of Hebrews, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament system, in the law of Moses, all of those sacrifices were like reminders if God needs to be reminded, they all say, Lord, the sacrifice is coming. These sacrifices are simple reminders of the sacrifice. And we're gonna see this in the text of Hebrews as we go forward. Now, <clears throat> so he, be, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation eternal salvation, that's a salvation that doesn't go away. It lasts forever. Now, this last expression is kind of interesting, to all who obey him. Now, I want to remember what we mean when we say obey here in the book of Hebrews, because here in the book of Hebrews, obey and believe mean the same thing. In fact, I think that's generally true in the New Testament. But we want to go back to chapter 3 and chapter 4, where we are encouraged not to be like those Israelites that came right up to the promised land and then did not obey and go on in. Remember that? They didn't obey. And that disobedience was a simple reflection and the only possible consequence of the fact that they did not trust God and his word. These two things always are, I think, two ways of talking about the same thing. To trust God is to obey God. And to obey God is to trust God. And so what we have here is those who obey, those who enter his rest here in the context of Hebrews those who go on in to receive the salvation, the eternal salvation 
of which Jesus is the source. Uh, so this isn't about obedience to the law of Moses in the law code. This isn't the code obedience. This is obedience to the calling of God in the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in a person. Now, I, I wanted to close this morning by noticing obey him and going back to that text in the book of Matthew. There's a commandment in that text. I'm just going to turn there. Matthew chapter 11, if you want to turn with me. Now listen, there's, there's a commandment in this text. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The commandment here is come to me. And the other commandments are like ways of doing that. Come to me. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Come to me. Take my yoke. Learn from me. What Jesus is commanding us to do is rely upon him and not ourselves. If you're weary and heavy laden, if, you're, if you can't handle it, come to him. He gives rest. He doesn't give more hard work. Come to me, I'll give you rest. He does say, take my yoke upon me. Well, that sounds like work. Learn from me. Well, that sounds like work. And then he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And of course, the reason his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because he's the one carrying it. We just ride under it because we come to him and he gives us rest. And so we rest in the finished work of Christ. We don't really bring anything to the table. And when uh, he's the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, really what we're talking about is we obey the call to bring to him all our troubles and distresses we obey the call to bring to him the burden of our sin because his sacrifice has atoned for us. And so we come to him and find rest. We find rest. That doesn't mean there's not going to be anything for us to do, but we, under his yoke, we get to sort of walk along while he does work. And so I encourage you this morning, maybe you're just seeing this for the first time, this high priest who stands before God on your behalf and all there is for you to do is stand there with him. All there is for you to do is to receive the salvation that he is the source of. We are not the source of our own salvation. We have a great high priest and so I ask you, will you come to Him? It's as simple as that. Will you come to Him? 
I saw a, a preacher on YouTube the other day, and he was talking about the thief on the cross. He said, imagine the thief on the cross, he goes up, you know, he died that day. He goes up to heaven, and there's the angel, and the angel says, uh, why are you here? The thief on the cross says, uh, I don't know. The angel doesn't know what to make of that. He's, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. So the angel goes to get his supervisor. <laughs> He's never heard this answer before. The supervisor comes, says, why are you here? He says, I don't know. So the angels are scratching their heads. They don't know what to do with this guy. And so they ask him a question. They say, well, are you familiar with the doctrine of justification by faith alone? I says, I've never heard of it. Why should we let you in? And the thief finally says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. We are not saved because of anything about us. We are saved by the man on the middle cross. We are saved by the sacrifice of Christ. He is the source of eternal salvation. I don't, have, I don't need an excuse I'm with Him. He said, if anyone comes to me, I will not turn him away. Anyone. He is available for anyone. And so, if you come to Him, He will receive you. And here He says, come to Me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give you rest. Just come to Him. You don't have to understand how to behave like a Christian. We'll sort that out. You don't have to understand all the riches of all the doctrine and theology of the church. It's wonderful and worth knowing, but all you need to know is Christ. And if you come to Him, He will give you rest. I hope you'll do that today, if you haven't already. And if you have already, I hope you'll continue doing it. Because <laughs> you know, every day when you're weary and heavy laden, He will give you rest if you come to Him. If you remember, He is the high priest that knows your predicament. And he has undergone the same things and has really a perfect understanding of all that you go through. And he is able to sympathize with your weakness. And he can deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What an amazing story, Lord. What an amazing history. But the very Son of God has become one of us in order to be us before you, in order to bring us back to you. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to my voice that these things would be real in their hearts, in their minds, and in their lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by his Spirit. Amen.